And that's the news from RTHK. RTHK. RTHK Radio 3. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hi, I'm Secretary for Housing, Winnie Ho. Happy birthday to RTHK's 95th anniversary. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Good morning and welcome to the Week on 3 with me, Noreen Mayer. It's really lovely to be with you this Saturday morning and I've selected a whole bunch of great interviews that I think you'll enjoy. And in case you're interested or know anyone who's interested, Radio 3 is looking for new voices. If you're a good storyteller or you like helping others tell their story, then send a one-minute recording of yourself telling us something interesting. You can find out more by visiting our Radio 3 homepage or you can email us at voice at rthk.hk. And you never know, we can be colleagues or even better, best friends. Sure, sure. Well, on with this week's program. I've got Chinese medicine practices, art, chat GPT, and of course, some music for you. Let's start with a bit of art. On Tuesday's brunch, Andrew Dambina interviewed three accomplished artists who appeared at Art Central 2023 Art Fair at the Hong Kong Convention and Exhibition Center. Here's an excerpt with one of the artists. Hi, I'm Bev Butker. I'm an artist who's exhibiting at Art Central in Hong Kong for the first time. I come from South Africa and I brought a textile installation, four different pieces which are suspended. I work with a whole lot of different mediums. Um, I don't like to be defined by medium or by the way that I approach my making. So we're walking into the hanging textile installation that Beverly just mentioned and you're encouraging those that come to Art Central to be able to touch the artwork itself, right, which is unusual in the fine art world. It is unusual and I think that we have to get over this point of separating ourselves from art because for me creativity and expressing ourselves creatively is an innate part of human nature. In fact, I think it's what separates us from animals and being in our body and expressing our creativity is, is an absolutely essential part of, of living in this world for me. I must say that the eye is drawn to all of these curious different threads and textiles that you have uh, around here. Where did you get this collection of different um, materials that we're surrounded by, all very colourful? The um, scrap fabrics that I use are all salvaged kind of like remains from a friend of mine who's a dressmaking business and I I, I take all her scraps and it dawned on me at some stage that my grandmother who had left Europe just before the Second World War and lived quite an austere life, they didn't have very much financially and she saved every ribbon, every scrap, uh, every wrapping paper that wrapped a gift and it, it dawned on me that I've actually been replicating what my grandmother hmm. collected in her drawers. If you had to be describing what is the overall concept of these four large hanging tapestries, what would you say? 
they very much pull together a personal narrative, a material nav- narrative, thinking about how materials speak about social conditions, and then also about like the patterns of, of society and how the individual fits into uh, ah. into society as a whole. I've got to say, in the time that we've been here, listeners, we've had a number of people looking on, taking pictures. The Hong Kong Tourism Board just walked through taking a video. It's, um, it's drawing a lot of attention here. W- were you expecting it to get so much attention? I mean, obviously, it's always nice to get attention, and I appreciate it, so thank you very much, everyone. Expectation, I never have any, because you always get disappointed. But I think what becomes clear to me is that most artworks are framed and are um, stretched and are very firm and very hard and um, take a very definite form. And my work is very fluid. It's much more um, integrated into the environment because it's very porous, and you can see the background through it. And I like people to touch, and I like people to and I think that if I can get people to take a big deep breath in and a big deep breath out then I think I've achieved something I think it reminds us to live in our body to get out of our head and the rush and the stresses of life and to to just like be in this world in a way so if I could think about my work as a big exhale I would be like if that's what it does to people I would be very grateful I'm actually genuinely feeling more relaxed hearing you say that just generally in life so if I can tell you something very bizarre, I've got a friend who works with energy and we, we kind of did this energy ceremony through the works and it was astounding. She's got like these copper rods which monitor almost like a water diviner. The energy in these works was just so incredibly huge and I have no idea what that is. It doesn't make any logical sense. Mm. I'm almost embarrassed to say it aloud but there's something. There's an energy in things and I think these materials have been allowed to express their energy and their place in the world and it's quite nice for not only humans to kind of like take their place in the world but to allow materials also to stand up and have a voice. Beverly it is a lovely piece where can people find you on social media? Bev Butko, it's B-E-V-B-U-T-K-O-W at Instagram. Otherwise, my gallery is Guns and Rain with an ampersand. And um, Julie's got a wonderful collection of Southern African artists. She's really trying to expose the creativity of Southern Africa to the world. Um, so, yeah, either of those mediums. And that was Tuesday's Artsing Around with Andrew Dembina. Now from art to AI. Well, who knows? Soon it might be AIs creating art for us. Anyway, on Thursday's Back Chat, they looked at the role of artificial intelligence in education. On Thursday's Back Chat, hosts Janice Wong and Danny Gittings, along with their panel of guests, talked about ChatGPT and how it can be a part of our learning. Kevin Pereira, the managing director at Blue Limited, starts by explaining what ChatGPT is. ChatGPT is effectively a, a tool that you can use to provide, you know, text uh, uh, questions, and it would give you the responses from a text uh, perspective. I think the newer versions of, of ChatGPT, specifically GPT-4, can also do this with input from pictures as well. So I think it's actually pretty exciting in terms of what the possibilities are. Uh, maybe one of the ways uh, people who are not familiar can think about it is, is uh, sort of the ultimate autocomplete. Right, you give it a question, you give it a, a sort of request, and it comes back and it gives you uh, the response uh, you know, in, in, in the way that you ask it for. So the prompt there is actually very, very important. But it only goes up to 2021, doesn't it? Uh, yes. In terms of the data for ChatGPT specifically, it's 2021. I think the future versions in GPT-4, I think the data set's a little bit bigger. 
Right. If it is that powerful, is it really suitable for uh, for use in schools or universities? Uh, Professor Friginal, what's your take on this? That's something that we are exploring at the moment. And uh, uh, with, with what Kevin mentioned, uh, we utilize chat GPT as kind of like the default, but there are many out there uh, as well, right? So um, AI layered uh, language models or LLMs uh, and then chat GPT is the leading um, uh, version of this or uh, component. Uh, but there are many of them uh, now really easily accessible even for us here in Hong Kong. And it's very, very promising. So similar to what you guys read, uh, uh, written for us by chat GPT at the intro, um, you use the term uh, disruptive. And, th- and that is something in the education circles uh, you know, for, for us to empirically study. Is it really disruptive or could there be a positive positioning of it in the classroom? Could it be transformative uh, even? Right now, this is really just at the very early stages. I mean, I was involved in the early applications of ChatGPT in late November, and uh, it, it seems like a very, very long time ago uh, compared to now. So uh, to answer your question, uh, Janet, it's really something um, for us to learn from. I am a very uh, strong supportive, uh, supporter of ChatGPT in the classroom. I understand the risks, and uh, but I'm really very helpful about how it could actually be uh, adapted and um, leverage across very many activities in the classroom. Right. So, so you let your students use ChatGPT in their work. Um, do you also um, use ChatGPT to to mark their work? Um, I, I, um, yes, and yes uh, for both. Uh, but I know that I have responsibilities when it comes to informing the students directly. You know, the good, uh, important thing to consider is for the students and for myself as an instructor to know that we all know what it is about, right? So all of us know what it is. I know what they know. They know what I know, right? So um, there there are no surprises and there are expectations that um, we have to, uh, from the very beginning of how it could be integrated in an activity, like for example, writing a response to uh, an essay prompt or an essay question, right? Uh, I know what they know and I know that I expect them to check for accuracy. Uh, you know, uh, the term that many people use uh, about the mistakes uh, created in the, the outputs is the hallucination. You know, there is a tendency for uh, ChatGPT to say something that is not accurate uh, because of the model. You know, it, it's uh, logical, but then there's really um, uh, accuracy isn't uh, there yet. So I know and I want my students to know that, hey, I, you need to check this. You know, you're responsible to ensuring uh, quality and also the ethics uh, of it. The second side of it is my assessment. You know, I actually haven't used the whole because ChatGPT uh, and many others like it can produce a response to an output. You know, you can tell it to, hey, here's the output, um, write a, a summary response about uh, the criteria that I can provide and how will you analyze this output. You know, it's a possibility that technically ChatGPT could write the essay and ChatGPT could analyze the essay as well, right? That's the funny thing about that. But uh, there is, uh, for teachers, if you're dealing with 150 essays, uh, for example, then there could be a way to leverage that option. I won't utilize it because I want my answers, my comments, my feedback to my students to be really personal. And so I wanted really a personal response. But there could be a way for ChatGPT to help me 
in providing some of okay. the initial responses. Okay, okay. Uh, let's bring in the uh, third of our guests, uh, Ryan Whalen, who's Associate Professor at the Faculty of Law at University of Hong Kong. And before we do, I'll just br- briefly note, as uh, some, some listeners will know, I also work for a uh, branch of Hong Kong U, a different branch, Hong Kong U Space, but of course I'm not speaking on behalf of Hong Kong U or Hong Kong U Space here. Uh, Ryan, Ryan Whalen, um, Hong Kong U has taken a fairly strong stance, hasn't it, on ChatGPT, at least initially? So, uh, yes, uh, thank you, Danny. I think you're, you're right. They've been relatively uh, clear that by default, uh, the use of ChatGPT by students will be treated um, as sort of an academic uh, dishonesty issue. I will say I think uh, that that has maybe been slightly overblown in that the policy does give faculty members the freedom to use ChatGPT in their classrooms and to empower their students to use ChatGPT. So again, I don't speak on behalf of HPU, mm-hmm. but my understanding of the policy is that if uh, faculty members such as myself want their students to use uh, ChatGPT or other uh, chatbots or large language models, then they're they're totally capable to do so. I Just last night I was teaching a, a data science class and I, I told my students that, you know, if you're while you're developing your code, you want to consult Either the internet, you know, people use Stack Overflow, which is a website for, for programmers all the time, or uh, a generative AI to help you develop your code. That's fine with me because it, it reflects uh, the real world. And I think that's uh, an important thing for us to note is that as university educators, we're training students to live in the world that we actually live in, not, you know, the world that existed 24 months ago. And so we have to equip them with the skills that they're going to need to be able to function in this world. And so to completely shut off access to chat GPT uh, within the educational context uh, probably won't help them do that. So it's, it's my policy, at least, and I, I believe it's the, the capability of other faculty members to have it be their policy that students can use chat GPT provided the faculty member uh, agrees and is cognizant of that. All right, Kevin, um, you also uh, you're also a lecturer as well. Um, what do you think of uh, Chat GPT's potential as an education tool? I mean, does it outweigh the the risks? I mean, in my view, uh, this tool, like a lot of other tools, is going to be available to students once they graduate. And my sense is, you know, with a lot of jobs, we're going to see what I what I like to describe as task automation. Right, so the idea that there's a job consists of certain tasks. Some of them are easy to automate, some of them are hard to automate. So then the real question I think is gonna be, these tools are gonna automate some pieces, and then we're gonna see these um, students potentially be able to use that going forward. So I think if they're gonna use it after school, then they should be given, at least in my opinion, the ability to use it before then, and then they should be able to you know, at least use it responsibly in a, in a sort of smart way. So I'm, I'm a fan of it. I, I think it does make sense kind of going forward. Uh, there needs to be, like I think a few of uh, you know, the, the other folks said, uh, we need to understand how to use it in the right way, though. So that's basically checking it beforehand or checking the output before you're going to use it somewhere. And then also you know, using it in a way where maybe uh, later on we might come up with standards of citing it. You know, I think that's another area that people are exploring potentially. So if you do use this tool, can you, in your output, also say that you have used it? And is there a responsible way to do that? So I think that'll be also be another interesting uh, aspect going forward as well with using these tools. And, and how about this particular problem that at least the current versions, I haven't tried ChatGPT4, but at least the, the other versions, they, they just blend f- fact and fiction together. I mean, and if you, <clears throat> and I recommend anyone to try, try asking ChatGPT to describe, write a biography yourself. And you see there's a, obviously you, or some, a subject you know, mm-hmm. you know which bits are fact and which are fiction. But mm-hmm. when you're dealing with something which you, you don't know, 
know, then it's it's very di difficult to disentangle the two. Yes, and that's why it's so so important to read the output and review it and make sure that it, the facts that it picks up are actually true. So you know, I think copy and pasting the output directly, terrible, absolutely terrible idea. I think it really is incumbent upon people to look at the output, verify it, and then take it from there. And that was Thursday's back chat with Janice Wong and Danny Gittings. We often explore the role of Chinese medicine in our health and fitness. In the next few minutes, we're going to take a look at its role in managing cancer symptoms. We know that cancer patients go through a lot of stress, and when you add up the side effects they also experience with the medication and therapy sessions, it can sometimes be very difficult to cope. So on Wednesday's brunch, I spoke to registered Chinese medicine practitioner Keith Kwan about how to better manage some of these symptoms associated with cancer, such as nausea, pain, and tiredness. Part of these symptoms is caused by the cancer itself, but mainly it's due to the treatment that the patient is receiving. Sometimes the patient discovers they have cancer, but they are normally they do not have any symptoms until they go into like body checks and they found out. So the first time they they become anxious about it, but uh, if, uh, when they start uh, receiving therapy, especially chemotherapy, that's when where the the symptoms comes in. Like right after injection, people can feel that oh, it's very nauseous inside, and sometimes you want to form it. So one of the main symptoms of the cancer treatment side effects. And sometimes surgery do take a part too. Like if you uh, have breast cancer and you undergone breast cancer surgery, That's removal. Right. And then sometimes uh, when you, uh, the minor surgery is okay, but when you remove the entire breast, sometimes uh, even the lymph nodes, it affects your shoulder. Like it makes your upper limb go swelling. We call edema in medical terms. And sometimes it has some like shoulder arthritis symptoms, like frozen shoulder symptoms, where you get painful at night and you can't lift your shoulder up. And those kind of, those are the moments that you can need TCM care to help you go through the entire treatment more easily. Yeah, and say for example, nausea, how long does that last for? Because it's very debilitating if you feel nauseous all the time. You, you, you don't want to move, you don't want to go anywhere. How mm. long does that last for? Typically, it's right after the every chemotherapy cycle. Like when you after inject after the injection of the drugs, you typically get it one to three days. So normally, you get also get some anti-emetic drugs like mm. anti-vomiting drugs. It will it will help help with you a bit. But also, if you can know some acupuncture points in your ear, you can directly put some ears to stimulate that. It can drastically decrease the the incidence of the nausea. It's a, a lot of clinical trials in the US has done it to reduce the chemotherapy nausea. Yeah, another symptom is fatigue. Mm. We often hear how, how tired, well, anybody who is sick is quite tired. Mm. Uh, cancer patients in particular often talk about how tired they are. Is that from the cancer itself or is it from their treatment as well? What's your experience? Uh, it depends on the stage. Like if you, if you are, uh, uh, if you're strong and healthy individual at all and just discovered cancer recently. So in Chinese medicine terms, you said your chi is good. Like uh, we normally do not feel tired after that, but what 
after you start chemotherapy or treatment, it will cause your chi to 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 diminish. So you will feel tired. That and and there's another cases of a scenario that people will get tired is that when they have been a disease for uh, in the later stage of the disease, so our chi is diminished. So that time when you are not even receiving any kind of chemotherapy or other treatment, you can still get tired as well. Yeah. Um. Keith, explain what chi is to some of our mm-hmm. listeners who may not be so familiar mm-hmm. with it. In, in Cantonese, it's hei. So it's, yeah, hei. So wow, it's, very good Cantonese. <laughs> so it's air. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you explain it? Uh, it's not like air. It's like some, some kind of energy that pulls all of your physical function inside your body mm-hmm. sometimes. So it's just uh, in in ancient China, we don't have like glucose metabolism, we don't have those energy terms, we just use qi to describe all the things. But the thing that we have to to, to remind us, to, to, to know is that we have qi uh, when, when we see people with qi deficiency, we give them qi boosting herbs. So it is actually the her- active ingredients of these herbs that gives you the, the effect. So uh, from modern research, we can see that uh, these herbs such as astragalus or ginseng, they can boost your immunity or make, your, uh, make you feel less fatigued, make you less stressed. It is this kind of mechanism that is actually happening to help you cope with the uh, cancer. Okay. Um, and in terms of these symptoms, so th- we, we talked about tiredness, uh, we, we talked about fatigue. What about pain? Is there something that uh, you can take to uh, alleviate the pain? Or would you recommend acupuncture, for example, or, or various pressure points? Mm, uh, typically, we, uh, when whether you whether you receive uh, Chinese medicine or not, uh, your oncologist or your doctor will prescribe some painkiller. There are three, three steps. The first step is some NSAIDs some uh, anti-inflammatory drugs and then if that doesn't work they will slowly increase to other more potent like opiate opiate like uh drugs for that but that sometimes affects your quality of life people say ah i have pain but eating this drug makes me less painful but uh i'm so now yeah Yeah. i can't even talk to my children i can't even talk to my family so these are the good moments that you can rely on chinese medicine so there's a lot of research that had done in U.S. especially. Mm. So people have pain and pain. Uh, they do acupuncture, especially electroacupuncture. What's electric? Uh, so it's using electricity. Yeah. So if you have some acupuncture experience, you see sometimes just put needles in. Some people, when they put needles in, you oh. you put some wires oh, on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah. So research have found that uh, putting a specific frequency of electricity into acupoints can activate your your innate uh, painkiller painkiller system it inhibits your pain like uh, natural opioid system that it activates in your body so you do not have you have the painkilling effect but you do not have those uh, sewn outside effects that you take such as is that is it painful when the electric when the electricity goes through you or do you feel it it sounds like awful right (laughs) like electricity like some Frankenstein stuff yeah (laughs) But it it isn't like yeah because uh, acu- I've tried acupuncture it's not painful actually it's not painful. You d- yeah you don't really feel the needles going in yes but when you put the electricity in it just twitches your body twitches the muscles like oh okay so you, like you so you don't feel pain but you, you feel, don't feel movement pain, yeah. okay and what can that help uh, pain management can that help with nausea as well actually all the all the 
all the symptoms that we've managed, they can help. Like acupuncture can have a lot of uh, cancer quality of life uh, perspective. It cannot, uh, it cannot help with your survival. So that's 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 the limitation of that. But uh, whether nausea, fatigue, insomnia, even like hot flashes that people receive, yes. and pain, and uh, it can all help the in immensely the quality of life of the cancer patients. And that was Keith Kwan on Wednesday's brunch on the role of TCM on cancer symptom management. And finally, it's the end of the show, so let me bid you farewell with some good old-fashioned music entertainment. Here is Steve James on Monday's Afternoon Drive. Have a great weekend. The factories may be roaring with the boom a lack a zoom a lack a wee. But there isn't any roar when the clock strikes four. Everything stops for tea. You remember Cleopatra had a date to meet Mark Antony at three. When he came an hour late, she said, You'll have to wait, but everything stops for tea. Ooh, it's Elvis time. This day, 1972, Elvis Presley recorded what would be his last major hits. It became a number two hit on the US chart. It was written by Dennis Lind and originally recorded by country soul artist Arthur Alexander, who included this song on his 1972 self-titled album. It was soon covered and brought to fame by Elvis, becoming his biggest hit single in the United States since Suspicious Minds in 69.